iOS helps you control which apps you share your exact location with. There's more to iPhone. Hello and welcome to the Game Football Podcast from The Times. Today, Norwich City climb out of the Premier League's relegation zone. We'll get the latest on Newcastle United and whether they'll bring in any big names this January. Things have got a little bit more interesting in the hunt for a place in the Champions League. We'll get the lowdown on what could be a difficult week at Derby County. And who is your dream outfield player come goalkeeper? All that and more on the game. I'm Hugh Wisencroft alongside Alison Rudd and Tom Clark on this Monday morning. How are you? How are you? All well? Good? Everyone smiling? Well, I, I was smiling, what? Hugh. We've got to give the listeners a big update. Never mind the football. Cupcake gate. We've got another well, another incident. And but, it's and it's bad news for Tom Roddy, isn't it? Let's be honest. <laughs> Hugh, would you like to admit what I walked in on this morning? Alison Rudd eating her own personalised cupcake from Hugh Wisencroft. Yes, gluten-free, which is... I, I made a mistake of bringing non-gluten-free cupcakes before and so I, I owed Ali a, a cupcake and I brought it in today. Oh, it's very nice of you. I just shudder to think what Tom Rod, poor old Tom Roddy's going to think well, when I'll, he finds uh, out about this. Listen, I'll bring one in for Tom Roddy too. You know, you're not getting one. That's the ultimate, okay? okay? Fine. Fine. Yeah, the big question though is whether the cupcake you bring in for Tom Roddy is got blue icing because mine had pink icing. Just one. Because you're a girl. <laughs> they asked me for flavours and I said vanilla sounds good. I didn't know I didn't know what it looked like. I, I'm or maybe sorry. he was going red for Liverpool themed. Maybe that's what it was. Here's the thing though. It shouldn't be called Cupcake Gate this morning. It should be called Banana Bread Gate because you promised that you would... I did you say would, I was going to bring a yeah, cake. Yeah, thanks in. very much. Where is it? Oh, well, I'm waiting for Tom Roddy because I'm a nice guy who thinks about the whole team, Hugh. I see. Not okay. the star player. No, no, okay. Well, okay. Well, I can only apologise for not bringing you in uh, either a gluten-free or non-gluten-free cupcake or anything else this week that you still would have told me you hate anyway, so I've got <laughs> no idea why you're complaining. Uh, listen, let's go to the bottom of the table in the Premier League. Let's start our, our conversation with Norwich City. Today, they are out of the Premier League's relegation zone. A 3-0 win at Watford on Friday night, which, by the way, surely means Claudio Ranieri's getting the sack very soon. Um, but Josh Sargent scoring his first two Premier League goals, including a Pushkas Award contender off the heel. Norwich making it back-to-back wins. 11 defeats in 13 games, though, for Watford. Are Norwich, Tom, about to shut everyone up and show us that we were all wrong and that there was a real improvement there and they're going to stay in the Premier League? Well, before I answer, Hugh, it's time for my favourite part of the game podcast where <laughs> we go back in time and we listen to things that Alison and Hugh said about certain teams in the past because I think you had some interesting comments about Norwich before. I find them pretty meaningless. It's like made-up football. It's just ridiculous. So, yes, they are pathetic. Yeah, get rid of them. <laughs> That's got to be the best so far, hasn't it? Really, really punchy. And I'm not saying that I have any personal strong connections with producer John, but I think he has also found a clip in which maybe one of the three of us praised their new manager, Dean Smith. That's probably one of the reasons he was chosen. That kind of tactical tweak that he showed at Villa, if he can do that at Norwich, then it'll be a good appointment because it at least then gives them a solid foundation and it gives them a fighting chance because at the minute, you know, all the debate is around what's the point of Norwich in the Premier League. Dean Smith can hopefully give them a point. <laughs> 
frankly, that wasn't a direct comment at all. There was if there was a, there was a couple of ifs in there. You never made any statement about them, really. You were just saying, well, well, if, if if they win every game, then he'll be a brilliant manager. Honestly, well, well, yeah, we know that. Thanks very much. You know, great insight. The microphones we use in this studio are attached to some kind of stand, but if I was holding it, I would drop it <laughs> and walk out of the room. The yeah, pot. yeah, but there's Farker Norwich and there's Dean Smith Norwich, and they're completely different. Yeah, they aren't. They, they are. They're both no, rubbish. They are different, and they are different. And knowing that we were, I was going to try and humiliate the both of you as much as I love you. Obviously, <laughs> I did have a look at the stats. Both managers, eleven games in the Premier League. I mean, Farker was an absolute disaster. They were bottom for shots on target, um, sh- shooting accuracy, second worst in the league. Total shots, second worst in the league. Chances created, second low, uh, the lowest in the league. Goals conceded, most in the league. Shots on targets faced, most in the league. And Dean Smith, tactical tweaks, as I said, giving them a point. He's he's improved them. Shots on target faced, they're now eighth. Goals conceded, eighth. Chances created, fourteenth. You know, so they're not bottom and the worst in absolutely everything. So he is improving them. And yes, they're not setting the world on fire. And yes, it's not dramatically dramatically improved. But as we highlighted a few week, few weeks ago, um, when they got that win against Everton. My God, they've got a chance. So it's from that, are they the worst team in the Premier League history conversation to they're actually in with a fighting chance. And it, it is it is small changes, but they just looked more solid against a very poor Watford team, admittedly. And I was speaking to a colleague of mine who's a Norwich fan, and she said the biggest difference is that they actually seem like they've got a bit of a plan up front now. Um, Puki, Ida, Rashika being back, she says that it looks like they might actually create some chances and score some goals, maybe. Which is, it? I mean, it's a low bar. Dean Smith had a very low bar to jump over in terms of improving them, but he's getting there. Yeah, look, I think one of the things that have helped Norwich is defending. I actually think that's a, the, the bigger improvement. Remember yeah. we were talking about how bad they were yeah. they at, see- the, at the back. Yeah. I think that has... That has helped them. But I've got to say, the two victories come against two very bad teams. Can only beat what's in front of you, I, I know, and they're not going to beat many of the other teams in front of them, <laughs> which I think is my point. Now, listen, I'm not saying they're going to get relegated. They've definitely changed my opinion on that under Dean Smith. And not going to be the worst team in Premier League history, surely. Yeah, of course, of course, of course. But they still might get relegated. Yeah. I don't think there's there's been this massive change that we'd be like, they're, they're going to be a tough game, Norwich Yeah, City. but it's a backup. Tom's stats there's there's also the, the the way they look I mean you've got Dean Smith's demeanour on the touchline so relaxed so looking so pleased with what he's seeing you've got the way they're playing there's um, more energy more freedom they there was a point under Farker where they, they stopped moving mm, I mean they were yeah. they were dreadful they looked lost tactically and, and they had no energy they, what they look like, and this is a big compliment, it's not a backhanded compliment, they look like a normal Premier League team at the moment. Nothing yeah, exceptional, no. but they don't, they don't look a disgrace anymore. Yeah. And that's down to Dean Smith, who I think was despairing in, for a short period, because it, it, I think it probably took him longer than he hoped to make those tweaks that Tom's talked about. Maybe it's more than tweaks. Maybe he's doing a lot of things that are very different. You know, Maybe they're eating at different times and <laughs> training different times and yeah but he's, he's he's making them look like a completely different team and also you cannot i think the laws of football should be that you cannot be relegated if you score a goal like sergeant's goal <laughs> I, I could i could honestly watch that 60 times a day and not get bored of it it is 
so surprising and so beautiful. Well, he's a classic example of what Dean Smith must have done, surely. Surely. There's a guy who was picked out endlessly on Match of the Day for poor performances and things. Mm -hmm. And now, Alison is quite rightly highlighting him. And I mean, lots of other things. Watching him on the touchline, speaking with players like Brandon Williams, you know, young players on loan who... Early in the season, you were looking. This is a disastrous move. You know, yeah, he'd been yeah. okay for Manchester United, and Smith is giving him specific instructions, and he looked really, really up for it in the Watford game. Um, and again, just that commitment type thing. And and the stats I highlighted don't tell a full story, but what they do hint at is if you're facing fewer shots, if you're not bottom for all those metrics, that I, is that you're playing as a team probably. That your forwards are working hard defensively, your midfielders are blocking shots, not letting the opposition get in behind. That's all they hint at, and that that's the kind of tweaks that Smith will have made. Yeah, look, there has been a definitely, um, I think, very clear improvement of Norwich. They are not the worst team in Premier League history. They're still a bad team. They are still a bad team. Everton are appalling. Their manager ended up getting the sack. Watford are even more appalling and their manager probably will end up getting the sack. I don't think these two results have changed Norwich City. Yes, they look more organised, they look better in all these regards, but mainly against poor sides. Yeah, but but you can only go up in increments, can't you? So they they start from the base level as being part of the conversation that are they, what is the point of Norwich? Why are they here? Yeah, they're embarrassing. We were maybe harsh on Norwich. And now they're in the... No, but... You can say we were rightly harsh on Norwich. They were getting turned over all the time in pathetic fashion. Fine to have that conversation. Dean Smith has given them, sorry to quote myself, a point. He's given them a purpose. <laughs> and now, they, they're now yes, they're still poor, but now they're one of four teams who will probably go down. Whereas before, they were definitely finishing bottom in everyone's predicted table. That's true. That is true. So credit to Dean Smith and credit to those Norwich players for running more and tackling a bit harder <laughs> and shooting and doing football things. heading and clearing congratulations Norwich City <laughs> what a team I'm just saying I've got to say Josh Sargent's goal was ridiculous by the way I was on the radio I was just watching it and I was just like oh my what that's an incredible goal um, a little bit like Olivier Giroud mm. um, was that that wasn't against Norwich was it that was against Palace I think but the heel flick yes it, underside of the crossbar oh no Bournemouth wasn't it was that Bournemouth anyway. uh, unbelievable goal anyway um, and I think it will be a, a goal of the season contender if not winner I mean I thought it was amazing but then I got involved in an argument on Twitter about how good Josh Sargent actually is <laughs> having scored probably the best goal of the season and uh, I was a bit like look I, I genuinely if someone were to say to me this Norwich City side, even with Dean Smith, are they getting promoted next season, even if they get relegated? Yes, true. But the championship is getting more and more competitive every season. I, that Norwich kind of bounce that they've had is no longer guaranteed, I don't think. Let's talk about Ranieri. Claudio Ranieri oh. at Watford. This oh. this had to be the nail in the coffin, surely. 11 defeats in 13 games. No real improvement. We all love him. You know, he's everyone's cuddly football granddad. But come on. <laughs> This was ridiculous, wasn't it? It was. 3-0 at home. Yeah, it wasn't great. And the, I've got to say, tactically, it looks a bit confused, doesn't it? With with all those forwards. Um, I mean, I speak as one of many hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people who captained Dennis in their fantasy football team, <laughs> only to see him marooned on the wing and then get sent off. Um, fairly disastrous. But it, they had all these forward players, João Pedro, Josh King and Dennis on the field, and yet they none of them ever seem to really be in the box and they never seem to create anything against the team with supposedly the worst defence in the Premier League, which doesn't seem the best and idea. And then afterwards, Ranieri apologised for not making the people happy 
as if, <laughs> as if, I mean, he's throwing on all these forwards because he knows that attacking play makes people happy, but he's mm. not, it's like this, it's like he's forgotten to build the team from the back, which is what you go in and do. It's, it's, it does seem rather curious. And also, I do think you reap what you sow. And if you have a reputation as a club for bailing out on your manager at the first sign of difficulty, what does that do to the manager you've just appointed? It means the players aren't going to buy into anything radical that the manager might introduce because what's the point? Because he's, he probably won't be there very long. There's, there's a, just a, there's, there's that sense of it being very temporary, even when your manager's supposed to have a honeymoon period. So they, whilst we we praised Watford for being uh, brutally realistic and clever about staying up, at some point it has to bite you, and, and maybe this is the season it does. Newcastle got their second win of the, the season. They were away at Leeds, massive for them. Burnley four games in hand on Norwich, uh, and another defeat for Everton, leaving them four points from safety as well. Uh, excuse me, four points above the drop. So, how do we see things going in terms of the relegation fight? Well, if you're talking, I mean, momentum is a very important thing and Everton's momentum's not, uh, well, it's, it's going downwards, not upwards. Can you have downward momentum? I think you can. They're going downwards. <laughs> so something has to change there. And then you think, well, big club like Everton, lots of resources, they must they must have a way of, of changing it. But oh, no, they haven't got a director of football and they haven't actually got a permanent manager. And the fans are doing that thing where they're starting to, unfurl banners that call for the heads of people who are have been at the club for centuries Bill Kenwright um, I don't really see that it's very seemly to publicly lampoon somebody who's been really ill and come through it and wants to give his all to the the club I mean he's obviously not doing a great job but I just don't see that's very productive at all and uh, they're in danger of turning in on you know eating themselves it's just it's just ridiculous so they have to think they're in you can't you can't just dismiss Everton as being part of the relegation narrative because they're Everton. You know, because if you look at any stats, if you look at any football stats ever, the answer, any quiz is usually Everton because they've been there so long. <laughs> and they, at some point that ends. So I, I think they should be worried. And uh, the other mystery at the bottom is what do Burnley do with their games in hand? And is drawing all of them <laughs> enough? It might be, you never know. It might be, it might be. But that was that was a significant moment this weekend, wasn't it? Newcastle win, big, big win for them. But we've talked on the podcast how Burnley have been a little unburnley like this season. A nil-nil, a battling nil-nil draw at Arsenal is about as Burnley as you can get. So for their fans, that's a significant moment. Players like James Tarkovsky been called into question at times this season, put in a pretty good performance. That gives them hope going forward. Uh, we shall see. We're going to talk about Newcastle United next. <laughs> anyway, we'll talk about the, the top four race a little bit later on. Matt Lawton will join us to talk about Derby County as well. And we'll talk our favourite substitute keepers who aren't actually keepers. Anyway, you'll find out a little bit later on. Stay with us on the game. Well, we've spoken about who might come through that relegation dogfight, but let's um, get a little bit more on Newcastle United specifically because their win at the weekend was one of the few victories at the club this month. Generally speaking, there's been a lack of expected transfer activity. The former owner is suing the new club director. 
and a trip to Saudi Arabia hasn't really landed overly well, if you know what I mean. Martin Hardy is here uh, for an update on his beloved club. Let's start on field, Martin. Uh, Eddie Howe's revolution, is that now kicking into gear for you or do you think there are still some big questions over his management? Certain questions were answered on Saturday and it was very, very timely. It was the first time that I've watched him and thought, right, we can see what you're trying to do here. They matched Leeds for running power, negated one of Leeds' huge strengths under Marcelo Bielsa and from there provided a platform to gain what could yet prove to be a massive win. It's changed the mood in time side, it's changed the mood inside the club and it also suggests they can stay up, which is going to be um, fairly significant in terms of trying to attract players like Jesse Lingard, which I'm sure you're going to speak about in a bit. What was interesting, which we've written this morning in the Times, is the fact that Eddie Howe had double training sessions for the players last week and really ran them hard and improved the fitness levels. You saw the uh, the benefit of that on Saturday. So from that perspective, it was the first time you've watched and thought, right, we can see what you're trying to do here. Um, he wants to play a progressive style of football. He wants to play on the front foot. And if you had of brought in a, a Sam Allardyce or dare we say a Rafa Benitez, you probably would have tried to tighten things up at the back. Whereas what Eddie Howe has done is try to make things different and more fluid and more uh, aggressive on the front foot. And that was what you saw coming through on Saturday with good performances from the likes of John Joe Shelby and Sean Longstaff. And Chris Wood, the new signer, came in and played well as a number nine, an old-fashioned target man to give them an option. So it was, a, it was a really significant day at Leeds, which you will have seen the celebrations from the supporters afterwards because Newcastle might be able to stay up now. And previously, that, uh, that's that been uh, very much in question. You mentioned Jesse Lingard. He's just one of about 72,000 <laughs> players who've been linked with Newcastle uh, this yeah. month. Kieran Trippier and Chris Wood, who you already mentioned, are in through the door. We expected maybe five or six signings to come in and help Newcastle out this month and use that tag of the richest club in the world. Why, why haven't we seen more signings materialise as yet? Well, the actual number that's been linked since the club was taken over in October is over 170. Wow. Um, so they would have quite a squad if they had signed everybody. <laughs> although, although choosing a team from 195 players might be a little bit difficult. It's... Now, this is such an awful cliche. January is not an easy month to buy because clubs don't want to sell. You have the added complication, which people haven't spoken about too much, is that clubs are very wary of, in the Premier League of COVID and COVID taking two or three players from the squad and giving them a headache, which you've seen through uh, the con- controversy of people cancelling games. So that's made it a little bit more difficult. Newcastle privately have been uh, very, very much against that kind of splash the cash idea that people would like them to be involved with so when you see Eden Hazard or Martial or whoever else that's not the kind of signings that we have been told they are going to look for and in fairness to the club Chris Wood and Kieran Trippi are not those kind of signings Eddie Howe um, has ended up very much inside that kind of that recruitment bubble um, of four people which is Amanda Stavely himself Steve Nixon who's been at the club for a long time as head of recruitment and Jason Tindall, the number two. And Howe is very conscious of the fact that he, he has to keep a harmonious dressing room and that's not going to happen if you're going to bring somebody in on £300,000 a week. From that perspective, you there, it, it, it changes what they're looking for, for to what the perception is of what they're looking for. Um, and inside of that, you, the, the, the hunt for Lingard goes on. It's still ongoing as we speak right now. The club of Newcastle are very keen. Manchester United are considering another offer from Newcastle in terms of a loan package that would see them through at the end of the season. 
Manchester United, and this, this is where it does start to become complicated because Man United don't want to don't play the player, but they don't want to sell the player, and they don't want to loan the player because they don't want to be embarrassed by Jesse Lingard doing what he did last season at West Ham, where he had a superb finish to the season and scored nine goals. If he goes to Newcastle and does that, the question would be, why did Man United not play this player? So they're cautious on that front, and that means Newcastle are trying to tiptoe around that. But in the process, add a player to their squad who is an England international, has pace, experience. and at the, But at the same time, they also have to be aware of the fact that the average age of their squad is starting to rise in that next season, Chris Wood will be 31 and Kieran Trippi will be 32. So they are conscious of that as well. They would have liked Diego Carlos to have signed um, from Sevilla, but Sevilla have proven uh, very stubborn, understandably, given the fact they're second in La Liga at the minute and have the opportunity to win their first La Liga title in about 60-odd years. And the release clause is probably double what Newcastle offered in terms of 30 million. And the other element which Newcastle have keyed to stress privately is we won't be held to ransom just because we have the backing of Saudi Arabia and the public investment fund. So you put all those bits together and it makes it perhaps a little bit more difficult than people had anticipated. They did think they would have a centre-half in the club for the game at Allen Road. But as it happens, Fabian Chair has probably one of his best games in a black and white shirt and may now have a future at the club, even though his contract doesn't have a particularly long left. So you have a lot of different elements and the club are very keen not to be seen to perhaps be that kind of Man City in the early days where they just went a bit berserk with money. Um, they want to be seen to have a considered approach and to recruit well and to keep whatever harmony they have inside of the dressing room under Eddie Howe. And again, after the win, you saw a massive team fought of the backroom staff and the players. So he's keen to protect that. And that means you're not going to get wild spending for a player um, who's going to come in on £400,000 a week. That, unless, of course, come the, the, the close of the transfer window and they haven't got any of their targets. But I'll be surprised if there's not at least two more players in by the end of January and you'd be looking at a centre-half and a centre-midfielder who perhaps is more of a defensive centre-midfielder. I got the impression that victory had emboldened Eddie Howe and that he spoke differently afterwards and there was a bit of politics in what he was saying. I felt the way he was praising the new signings, Trippier and Wood, like he was sending a message about A, how well his involvement in recruitment has been so far, but also sending a message that they do, <laughs> they really do need, you know, this, this victory was built upon making changes and having listened to you explain why there has to be a delicate balance between keeping the dressing room that exists happy and so on. I do, I, I got the impression, so tell me what you think. I got the impression he was playing slightly, uh, politi- you know, walking into political tightrope here, feeling emboldened that, that, you know, the new signings are playing well, they have got a victory, but he wants more and he feels like he can demand more. He was so deferential when he started to the, you know, the project, yeah. etc. But I just felt the real Eddie Howe might be coming out do you not think um it, that's, a, that's an interesting take because he has been very much on board with the recruitment from the start the fact that Castle haven't got a director of football yet or a chief executive may it, 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 it's very much in the balance at the minute because if Newcastle still and they haven't got a chief executive and director of football and they have relied on perhaps an old-fashioned managerial uh, approach which is listen to your head coach and see what he needs rather than the recruitment team saying we found somebody that's a bargain but he has quite a lot of influence in this. Um, I agree it was the most emboldened he'd been after a match. The, the, his use of language was the most provocative since he's been, since he came in November. 
Uh, it was much more colourful. The players were magnificent. Newcastle aren't dead and buried. Everything was heroic. Whereas on day one, it was kind of Eddie will Newcastle stay up, and he was kind of well, I, I hope so. And that wasn't quite the all guns blazing. Whereas after the game on Saturday, that second win did seem to increase his arm. But thus far, he's been very much part of the recruitment team. So I'd be surprised if it is a political shot uh, across the bows of Amanda Stavely. Stavely has gone to Saudi Arabia with the first team squad um, yesterday. Whereas Medrad Gudusi, her husband, oh, sorry, her partner, who is effectively uh, involved in transfers as well as staying in England to help move things along. If <laughs> given that. At Newcastle, we've lived through Rafa Benitez fighting against Mike Ashley every day, um, given the fact that we've had managers like Graeme Sooners saying um, he was unaware of who Albert Luque was when the club signed him. This actually feels far more harmonious in terms of the manager getting what he wants. And I don't think how once, as I said, all the, all the thick conversations we've had, how doesn't want people arriving who are on 300,000, 400,000 pounds a week and are going to blow his dressing room apart. Even on Friday when he spoke to us, he said I, it's a very difficult situation he's got because he has to keep those squad members on board with him. But at the same time, he has to say, look, we need new players. Now, obviously, you, you extrapolate that curve. If, you, if the manager is saying we need new players, that is saying the ones that I got aren't quite good enough. So he's got a delicate balance in that sense. But yes, there was disappointment on Friday when we spoke to him that he didn't have new players in, but there didn't seem to be anything that was barbed against the club at that point. And as I said, by chance, probably rather than design, he is one of the four key members of the recruitment team. So if it doesn't come off, the finger will... So if the deals don't come off, it will come to him as well. You look at Diego Carlos, who they've chased for a long time and can't get the fee right. They've been linked with a lot of centre-halves, but it's whether they eventually then kind of bring it back to Chris Wood and Q and Trippi and say, look, our needs are immediate. We need players who understand English football and therefore do they end up going for somebody like a Nat Phillips at Liverpool who you can drop into the team and he will understand what the English, the English league is about. Uh, in terms of politically pushing the board, I don't think that's where we are. It, that, that may be proved wrong over time, but I don't see that at the minute. Howe seems very much on board with what's happening, although... Does he want to be in Saudi Arabia playing a game? That that may, might be a different question. But in terms of uh, the, the, the transfer activity, I think he's. I think they are all at the minute uh, on the same page. Martin, just tell me finally about this trip to Saudi Arabia. Greeted warmly by the Public Investment Fund um, on social media, it includes we're told a friendly with Al Ittihad. But is it what the team needs right now? on field and off field as well, because it brings those big conversations back to the fore. And of course, it maybe takes the team away. Maybe that's a good or bad in terms of um, building that team bonding. In terms of team bonding, very good. In terms of playing a, fr- a game on Friday, very good. They're out the FA Cup. They don't have another game until they play Everton in the Premier League. And what a game that is in terms of size. Now a real chance to drag um, Everton into the relegation fight. Do they need to travel so far? That is a huge question. You would say, <laughs> well, if they weren't 80% owned by, owned by Saudi Arabia's public investment fund, you think there is no way in the world they're heading to Jeddah right now. Although, sorry, it's, it's too far. The logistics are difficult. It's a lot of travel. Um, the only thing in its favour, I think the, the temperature is currently 23 degrees. As somebody said to me, they should really have gone up the, the Northumberland coast and trained on the beaches to get used to the northeast wind. That would have given them far, something far better. However, um, in terms of bringing the players together, it's time spent away with each other. 
a chance for Kieran Trippier and Chris Wood to get to know other people. But it's 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 so politically sensitive. The timing of it is not great, as I, as you've said there. I agree with that, and it's a long way to go. But it does give them a game. The, it, if it had been La Manga or Spain, then it would have been less controversial and perhaps more understandable. Martin Hardy, thank you for joining us on the Game Podcast and giving us a full update on everything that's happening at Newcastle United right now. Still coming on the game, we'll be talking about the hunt for a Champions League place. You'll also get the latest on Derby County as well. Stay with us. As you're listening to me, Daisy, Apple's iPhone disassembly robot, is dismantling an iPhone into lots of recyclable parts. That's how Apple recovers more materials than conventional recycling methods. Thanks, Daisy. There's more to iPhone. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Things got a little bit more interesting in the hunt for a place in the Champions League. Spurs beaten 2-0 by Chelsea. Arsenal drew 0-0 with Burnley. And Manchester United beat West Ham with the last kick of the game. It means Manchester United are fourth. They've played 22 on 38 points. West Ham fifth. Played 23, 37 points. Arsenal back in sixth. They've played 21 on 36 points. And Spurs seventh. They're also on 36 points. But they've only played 20 games. Alison, let's start at Stamford Bridge then. You were there? Were yeah, you not? Yeah. You were, you were, yeah. Spurs um, missing some key components. It was their first defeat in 10 Premier League games under Antonio Conte and he wants help in the transfer market, although he doesn't want to talk about it. He keeps saying at the start of all of his sort of 10-minute answers on how many players he needs and how his team's <laughs> not good enough. So uh, what did you make of his side's performance? Well, I don't think going to Stamford Bridge, if you're Spurs, is, is, is the place or time to start playing politics with your club's owners and trying to make a point about what you need and don't need I really don't also you know they'd had this wonderful last minute during do victory over Leicester which got him so many positive headlines oh what he's doing to that team they must have amazing <laughs> energy levels suddenly because look what they did in the final sort of eight minutes of the match and it's a building on that and going to Stamford Bridge with a bit of a swagger, a sense of, okay, Chelsea have beaten us three times already this season, uh, but but look what we just did and Chelsea have been looking very tired and stupidly admitting how tired they are. They were the, they were the ingredients for what would have been an upset because Spurs' uh, record at Stamford Bridge is abysmal. And the ingredients were there and yet they, they, they were passive, I felt. Um, Stephen Bergwijn looked energetic most other people didn't and Chelsea I don't know first half was a bit duh, duh, duh. and then you got this ridiculous disallowed goal and I have some sympathy with um, Spurs on that because we don't know what would have happened if, if Harry Kane's goal had been allowed I ended up suggesting it might have been genius by Thiago Silva to decide to fall over because <laughs> he wouldn't have been able to do anything to stop the goal other than make the goal illegal uh, but it was still a bit of a risk I mean they've been if you if you look at um, 
the build-up to the goal of the season by Sargent, there's a push by Puki, which is allowed to go ahead. It's a foul, isn't it? It's, that's a foul. It's that's more a of a foul, foul than <laughs> Harry Kane's foul on Thiago Silva. So you do think, ah, oh, you know, could have gone either way. But even so, um, second half, Chelsea were back to being, they were back to being Chelsea. They were, they were a great mix of um, fine organisation with, and you know they've got so many wonderful individuals and it was the turn of Ziyech and I did say and I, I probably shouldn't have said it because it's so easy to say in when you're doing a match report to say that time seems to stand still but I was sat behind Ziyech when he got the ball from uh, Hudson-Odoi and t- it did there was just something mystical going on <laughs> he ha- he, he's so calm and I think that's sometimes interpreted as not caring enough but he's just so calm and he moved the ball to his left, looked up. Everyone else didn't move. It was a spell had been cast and it was just absolutely beautiful, beautiful finish. And then you knew that was going to be, that was going to be it. It was just Chelsea's day. And is it enough to reignite the title race? It doesn't matter in a sense, does it? Because it's not about what Chelsea do. It's not about what Liverpool do. It's about what Manchester City don't do. What did you make of the gap between Chelsea and Spurs? Uh, four games played, uh, 8-0 aggregate defeat for Spurs against Chelsea in those four games. They are away from the top teams in the league. It's clear. Antonio Conte keeps saying it. I still think that is a very odd thing for him to constantly talk about because I know he's an elite manager. Tottenham Hotspur aren't going to be a team that's winning the Premier League anytime soon. So the teams that he needs to be as, as good as are the team that's probably going to finish third or fourth, really. And he isn't that far away from that. I think Chelsea, the, the top three in the Premier League are, are, I think, very good teams and are cut away from everyone else. But if you look at this pool that we're discussing in terms of the race for fourth, I mean, Tottenham in many ways are, the, the under Antonio Conte, probably the best team out of all of them because he's, he's got that organisation he's got that work rate he's got a very clear and defined plan and even though he's tweaked his tactics over the past couple of games you know he does seem to have players who know their role mm. and the other clubs apart from West Ham United who I think are affected by the lack of depth that they've got at the club as well as injuries um, you, you see Arsenal okay they've got a clear defined plan but they're very inexperienced mm. they might not have the talent and then you see Manchester United who do have the talent but not necessarily a clear plan and defined roles you think Tottenham aren't doing that badly no maybe not I mean on the idea of how far they are away from Chelsea I don't actually agree I think it's not a terrible thing for Conte to keep referencing because we talked when he first got the job about what success would be and that means if he does get fourth and he's been chatting about a narrative about how far away they are from third second and first then he looks like he's he's won the mini league behind behind the top three teams so he can then spin that in a positive way as a great achievement of his following all those titles he's won I've been reflecting a little bit watching Tottenham about um, something Tom Roddy said on a previous show about them having the best first 11 of the teams chasing fourth and I'm not quite sure that's the case when I watch these big games they just they can't control the game enough they can't get hold of the ball in midfield I still think their defence is one of the weakest defences that they've had um, in previous years when you think about the kind of the Tongan Alderweireld days they were solid and reliable and were big game players they were experienced internationals and I'm just not sure the defence is as good I mean Alison I don't know whether you'd agree having watched quite a lot of these Tottenham Tottenham Chelsea clashes in recent weeks I just think watching those 
positions, central midfield and the defence, I just think that's where that's where they're really, really lacking. Yeah, no, and it's interesting you reference the the Vertonghen and Alderweireld days because the two, that that's they were built on that. Yeah, they had such an understanding, and mm. he's he, you know it's not just um, recently, but there's been a sort of to and froing about what system they play and who they play at the back. It is always a bit of a, bit of a surprise what lineup it's going to be for Spurs. You don't feel they've built there are any partnerships being built there. I know yeah. Eric Dyer was injured and then he comes mm-hmm. back in, and that's no one's fault particularly. But you just don't know what you're going to get. It's it's a team that's built the wrong way around because it's still about Harry Kane and Son when he's fit and then you hope that you can do things going backwards. But there's, you know, Larice is a pretty fine goalkeeper, but you do just you, don't know what you're going to get. Do you think their season hinges on the transfers they can possibly do by the end of the the, the month, sorry? I just don't see them doing many. I think they might have one frantic signing and might Managed to ship Deli Alley off out on loan, maybe. You know, we're a week away. I, it doesn't feel like, you know, and speaking to but, some but of our reporters, he, it doesn't. Saying, the club know what I want. The club know what I want. <clears throat> he says it over and over but again. Then, but the reality them, is what, what, I he, want. what he wants is two, two new wing backs, at least one centre half, and a ball playing midfielder who can di- control and dictate the game. You're not going to get that with Daniel Levy in a week of go, to go over the January transfer window. There might be some kind of fudge, but I, I think I think they can still get fourth even with the squad that they've got now because the teams battling for that position are so inconsistent and go through little peaks and troughs, and it'll be a that will be the race to the end of the season probably. Uh, Alison, Arsenal, um, I think missed out on what many people would have earmarked as three points at home to Burnley. They got one in the end, but is this the kind of result that underlines they aren't really credible Champions League contenders? I'm not. I find Arsenal really irritating now. I, wrote, I mean, I wrote, I wrote my Sunday Times column on how they're not really as interesting as people make out. And I'll be honest with you here and Tom, what's prompted me to write that was the way we've discussed them in recent months, really. that I think we we do make them more interesting than they actually are. <laughs> and uh, if you take their, their red card record, they haven't won a single game that where someone's been sent off. You can't say... That it's about being committed and taking one for the team and their disciplinary records showing that they're fighting for the club. It's all meaningless. It's all completely meaningless. What are they doing? They're, I don't know who they are anymore. It, it's all wrong. It's all it's, nothing fits. It's like a jigsaw puzzle. It's all been mixed up, and you've got you've got bits of sky from another another <laughs> another another pot. It's the wrong thing. It's like you've got Arteta who came in with what he claimed to be. He said he knew what the club needed and the values he wanted to instill and the sort of players that mattered to him. But it's been it's been a mishmash ever since. And sometimes they try too hard and someone's sent off. Sometimes they don't try hard enough and they don't get the point that they should get in a, in a game they should win against Burnley. I'm beginning to think they, regardless of what, how impressive a bloke Arteta is, is they just don't have an identity at all. Sometimes they're young players look very nice indeed. I will give you that. But what are they? But I think that's that's the battle for fourth place in a nutshell. It's a clash for identities, isn't it? Manchester United pulling it apart and starting again. Tottenham trying to work out whether they're a big club under Antonio Conte. Mikel Arteta trying to formulate his new Arsenal. And then you've got West Ham who do have a clear identity but are punching way above their weight. So it's a clash between those four teams. I'm not disagreeing with you necessarily on the point about Arsenal but I'm just saying in defence of them 
of those teams fighting for fourth, they're not the only one guilty of that. They lack aggression to me, Arsenal. That's apart, one from, thing. apart from when they're apart boot- from fourteen red cards under Arteta. No, no, no. As in, as in, uh, maybe aggression's the wrong word, but they lack arrogance. They lack that sort of we're going to command that. You know, their players don't seem like dominant individuals. But they're only young, though. And well, I think- that, that, well, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not. You know, I'm, I'm not saying they should be, but I'm saying if they're going to be fourth place, you, you want to see a side that really grabs control of every game, tries to dominate. That's the, I've always spoken about the successful teams being able to do that. And you watch them and there are too many players for me that just look like they aren't trying to wrestle the control of the match from their opposition. There are there's, there's a lot of safe performances and that's maybe because they're young and they're trying to get through it and they're trying to establish themselves as professionals and in the Arsenal starting lineup. But I think that's what's holding them back. I think they've got talent. I think these players can emerge. But at the moment, I think, you know, maybe there is a bit, little bit too much on the tactical side of things from Mikel Arteta because he seems to be that sort of coach and not enough of the you know the old school but the, that, you know the English stuff but the main, also that maybe comes with experience as well and we talked about it with Tottenham and that defence that where they were built on um, those number of seasons ago and we talked about it before with Liverpool when they hadn't won a title for ages and then they now they won a title and now they're chasing again so they do so with the knowledge that they can win a title it's, it's slightly patronising but Arsenal, these young players won't believe their Champions League team until they've got into the Champions League in in lots of respects. Yeah, yeah. So you, you have to give them that time, particularly some of these young players who have shown aggression and have been brilliant. That's where a lot of their good players come from, from their, their pressing up front with some of those players like Martinelli, Saka, Odegaard. I have sympathy for them. If you had, But if you had, if someone said to you, Tom, you have to describe Arsenal in one short sentence what they are, what would you say? One short sentence. You could do it for Liverpool, you could do it for West Ham, you could do it, you probably do it for even the teams you've claimed don't have an identity. You could still sum them up. I think they're young, really hard to sum up. Young, conflicted, work in progress. That's quite nice, isn't it? That's pretty good for on the spot, come on. Yeah. They're just, they're just, they're still in school. You know, they're still in school. They are yet to graduate. They are still learning their trade. <laughs> you know, they, they are though, they are. You look at West Ham United squad, for example, and there's a lot of players who have been around for a long time, you know, several teams, lots of experience, very few really young players. Okay, you've got even the likes of Jared Bowen, for example, who's in the team, but had plenty of games in the championship a couple of seasons as a first team player at at Hull. You know, you look around the team, you think even their young players, who, who they got, Ben Johnson, you know, there's no real, you know, everyone else has played a lot of games, a lot of seasons, you know, even though they've moved around, seasoned professionals at West Ham United which probably helps them and they've got a manager who's been through a lot Manchester United there are still young players there yeah but there's a lot of inflated egos and that's cost them as well and there's a lot of people that think they're a lot better than they are and I think they've just been carried away by the fact they play for such a huge club and maybe the the belief that they're a better team than they were was there under Ole Gunnar Solskjaer maybe they're in denial a, a, a little bit Tottenham Hotspur the same actually I think they're in denial too you know they think they're a very big club no they, they do they think they're a very big club and it's all about where we should be in terms of you know there there is no conversation about really getting there there hasn't been it's all just like Tottenham should be better than this I we, mean Manchester United we, they've got a great stadium we should be better than come this come on Manchester so. United are guilty of the where we should be thing that's been the biggest yeah, oh no, biggest Achilles oh no, oh no, in the last few oh no, years absolutely but, but I think at Manchester United there's a different reason for that which is that they believe the players in that squad actually think they are elite mm. and that's the issue I don't think the Tottenham players all think that they are well beaters I don't think that's a problem in the squad. I think maybe the fans think that Tottenham should be doing better 
Um, I think Daniel Levy is clearly not, he, he doesn't think that, you know, I, I, he doesn't spend money at that level. He doesn't approach it like that. But I think when you think about the fans and the anger and, and it has always been about Tottenham should be compete, you know, we almost won the league. We almost didn't, you know, it's not, it's not like, you know, for me, well, maybe Tottenham our, is maybe not that club. Arsenal are as an entity accepting that they're not the bee's knees anymore by sticking with Arteta. Maybe if they had delusions of grandeur, they would have sacked him. By but this now. is what I mean. To- like Tottenham don't have that plan. At least Arsenal have said, "Look, do you know what? We're going to start from scratch. We're going to go like three or four steps back. Younger, inexperienced manager, young, inexperienced players, and it's going to be a long-term yeah, goal that, to get and there." And that's where the transfers come from as well. Like you knew you were talking about West Ham, but West Ham have this, you know, a model of buying young players from the Championship. You know, Jared Bowen has been an incredible performer this season an incredible signing but Tottenham Arsenal Manchester United wouldn't have signed Jared Bowen from Hull Hmm. so they're going to sign players in a different bracket to West Ham and West Ham are also going to to be happier to sign players at the end of a contract whereas Arsenal have been guilty of that before so they're going to buy young players who then they can maybe build up and sell to Manchester City for 150 million in three years time but this is my point with Tottenham they haven't done that their strategy has not been to pull everything back they got Romero who's a great young player but he's going to cost 40 million quid Brian Gill who we don't know you know whether he's going to they've already done it with Lo Celso and Ndombele you know big money on players who hadn't proven anything and have not been good signings so if I was to say to you now what's the strategy under Antonio Conte for signing players at Tottenham what is it what sort of player would be the next player that comes through the door no I agree but I think Tottenham have always been guilty of that and it comes back to that thing of experience of that they haven't won a Premier League title. Arsenal did win titles under Arsene Wenger. And so they had the similar thing Manchester United had, where you fall so far from yeah. the pedestal. And now it comes back to Alison's point that maybe they are happy being that young team. You know, I've got friends who are Arsenal fans that are just excited by the young players, think that Arteta's improving them. They're in the conversation for the Champions League. We wouldn't have said that a mm. year ago, two years ago. And so they're happy with that. But one thing I was going to ask the three of who would who would you rather be a fan of, Hugh? I know you're a fan of Manchester United, but of the other three teams, West Ham, West Ham, right now you mean? Or yeah, just of those for, forever of, of those teams of those years. teams in this position. You know what we're talking about and what we're aspiring to. Because right. I'd 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 go Arsenal of those teams right now. I'd, I'd be, Ooh, be, you it, hipster! It would be West Ham for me. Well, they've got manager of the season, Mikel Arteta. Obviously, I'm going <laughs> to go for Arsenal. But no, I can just see a kind of idea, and I think they're exciting. So as much as I enjoy West Ham and think they've got an, uh, an identity as well, I do actually think Arsenal are getting an identity under Arteta and I think it's no, exciting. No, 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 but that's my point. They don't have an identity. They do, I've just said. I think you've imagined one. No, it's exciting. Work in progress, conflicted. No, that's the kind no, of drama no, I'm here for. No, 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 no. How can... It does nothing sits right together at all. How can you have a team that's had more... A manager for whom more players have been sent off than any other in his tenure as manager in the Premier League and yet in the same breath acknowledge that they're a bit wussy and lacking I don't think they're good wussy. old English spirit I don't think football as you put it here they are that was Hugh I don't think they're wussy I, I, don't, I don't mean this in terms of a physical what I mean is that sense of arrogance to go out on a Saturday and, and say we're going to win this game doesn't matter how we're going to win this game. That ball's going to get in the back of the net. We're going to we're going to yeah, win. But that comes with they experience. That comes that. with. So if they got the goal against Burnley, then they would have had that belief going forward. They're a, they're a young team. Listen, my club Manchester United, who I actually do support until the end of the season, beating West Ham with the last kick of the game was nice. It was nice. Was it offside? 
No, it wasn't offside. No, it wasn't offside. But but I think that did show what I've always spoken about on the podcast, why I think Man United will finish fourth. This depth. That it's just like you bring Cavani, you bring Martial, you bring Rashford off the mm. bench to change a game. Um, and the fact that they've got, you know, 35, you know, players, seemingly they never really have an injury crisis or anything like that at Manchester United as well, mm. will be the difference. I don't think they're as good a team on their day as the others. I, I, you know, if everyone's fit and firing... Ma- what is Manchester United under Ralph Rannick? No, he's getting there. Don't no, worry it's about just, it. Honestly, ta- give watch, him time. You watch that game, and you're just like they've given the ball away again. Give oh, they've t- given it. Who away won again. the game one nil? Oh, they've given it away again. Again, we're talking about the different levels here. If, if Manchester United want to be, for me, a team that waltzes into the Champions League, which is what we thought they would do, definitely the top four set. That's what we thought at the start of the season. I didn't. They need. Yeah, okay, but they need to control football matches. I say this about all teams, mm. and they don't. How can you, you know, you might have nicked a goal at the end, and it might be great, you know, Fergie time, Marcus Rashford's tweeting about it, etc., etc. You know, I, I know West Ham United are a good team, but Manchester United, had they spent their money better, just like the other teams, had they had players of the level that the money that they've spent should have commanded, these games shouldn't be an issue for them. But they didn't, and I mean, they got beat by Wolves in a similar game, 1-0, the other way and they won this game they're going through a lot of change right now but do you think they're you think Arsenal are going somewhere so we're Man United Man United are a few stages back but if they give Ranić the time that Arsenal have given Arteta then Manchester United will be in a better position faster it does worry me that Manchester United's shortlist for their new manager is four managers long. I mean, it's not like they haven't had time to think about who they might want Enrique Ten Hag Pochettino and Lopetegui as one of those four, we imagine, will become the new Manchester United boss at the end of the season. Their search, it's being reported, is going to begin in earnest in a, a couple of weeks' time. Oh, my goodness. Are they actually going to get Pochettino to deliver a PowerPoint presentation and not just give it to him? I mean, they've... <laughs> this is what I mean. This is what I mean. I just find it ridiculous <laughs> that it's being reported that they've got... Like, what are they expecting from, from these managers? Like, do they not have an idea? And I honestly believe that, that you know, it will become a saga. Manchester United seem addicted to them and they probably won't get any of those four at the end of it as well you know like if you're going to be the new manager of Manchester United I think the one thing you want and the one thing the players and fans want to see is that the club the board has confidence to say that's our target we want them and go for them and if you don't get them say right this is our second target and get them you shouldn't be going three or four down the list for a job this big in fact you shouldn't probably be going to number two for a job this big if Mauricio Pochettino doesn't want it Come on. I mean, it's a disaster at PSG. It's not going to get any better. If he doesn't want it, fine, fair enough. The next person on your list has to want this job. You know, stories about shortlist shouldn't be out there. How have they not spoken to these people's agents already? Manchester United average on the pitch, Manchester United shambolic off it. It's a tale as old as time. (laughs) Why are we surprised you? Basically, basically. Listen, let's talk about VAR very quickly. You mentioned the pooky push in the the Norwich game a little bit earlier on uh, against Watford. That probably should have been a foul. We've briefly mentioned the uh, Tottenham push, Harry Kane on Thiago Silva, put it in the back of the net. That was uh, given as a free kick, not overturned. Liverpool, Crystal Palace, Diogo Jota, Vicente Guaita. A penalty was given. Well, remember the, the game between Manchester City and Newcastle earlier on in the season where a penalty wasn't given. Edison clattering into Ryan yep. Fraser. Craig Pawson, the VAR official in that game and also in the Liverpool-Crystal Palace game. Maybe that entered his thinking a little bit when the decision was given, although the referee, Kevin Friend, went and checked it. Mm. So between the two of them, they've come to the decision that Jota was fouled. 
Where do you stand on it? I mean, this is not, but the, you introed this talking about VAR. This is not VAR. This is poor refereeing, isn't it? We should be able to have technology in the game and these incidents don't happen. And that's the problem. That's a side problem we've got with VAR is that it seems to have made referees slightly impotent in terms of <laughs> like, actually having any kind of control and or any balls to stick with any decisions. I thought, this is finally, this is going to be it. He's going to go over to the screen and go, nah, no way, lads, play on. And he kind of turned around. And it was like a look of resignation on his face, like he'd been controlled by another being going, I must give a penalty. I've looked at the screen and it's persuaded me that it is a penalty. It's never a penalty. It was infuriating to watch. We should also say that Liverpool were winning the game before any Liverpool fans angrily as they are doing no, on the Times even, website. No one mentioned the result. This is just about the decision. It's appalling decision and I am a Liverpool fan and I, I suspect most <coughs> honest Liverpool supporters would agree whilst it was fun to get the penalty it was not a penalty at all and Do you think yes, they'll stop grumbling about everyone being against them now? Or? <sighs> no? I'm being gracious to you there's no need to be ungracious <laughs> back um, it wasn't a penalty it was a comedic non-penalty yeah. actually and I thought it was a good effort by uh, by him to, to try and get it you know I'll, 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 I'll try and get win a penalty with a cheeky grin on his face but no it was it, was, it wasn't one and I, Tom's absolutely right VAR isn't a and I liked your tweet about this you, you used block block capital letters mm -hmm, didn't you mm -hmm, big bold yeah. big bold yes because I get I got very tired of VAR hearing ex-professional players yeah ex-professional players saying this is why VAR's not fit and this mm. is why VAR's killing the game and this is and there's nothing to do yeah. with VAR it's like blaming the whistle for a bad decision <laughs> it's got absolutely nothing to do with that yeah I mean that is that's the system that's the technology that's a tool but it's it's not making errors the mm. people using the, the tool are the one making the errors I mean I, I thought you know let's stop blaming VAR that was poor officiating from the referees Simple but, but it is it is the problem with VAR because if VAR didn't exist you'd have Referees who are more confident we, in their decisions. Have, it is paralysing. Countless them. It is more poor decisions them. if VAR didn't exist. There would be many more terrible decisions if VAR. But they wouldn't wasn't feel there. terrible because you wouldn't have the proof. You know, like we'd, you could, we'd still you, see the replay. Yeah, but you could say, well, the referee didn't have access to the replay and they were judging it on the field. And I think we can all accept if you're there in the middle of the hurly burliness of a game, you can judge the pace of everything better than watching it on the screen and I still stand by the fact if you watch something over and over again slow it down speed it back up look at different angles you will see what someone in your ear is telling you to see anyway so if so if one person has a view of something they can convince you that you you are seeing it wrong that, that, that's not that's not what we should be doing having these sort of ridiculous arguments about what you can and can't see oh I'm, I'm, I've, I've looked at it a lot Looks a lot, Mr. Referee. I think I think you've you just seen it wrong. So they lose that sense of you have to be arrogant to be a referee. I've done it. You have to, and I'm not arrogant enough to do it well. You have to be incredibly arrogant and powerful and strong and stick to what you've seen and not listen to all those players in your ear going, no, 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 you got it wrong, you got it wrong. How on earth can you give that free kick against me? You have to be really like, they're only going to respect you if you ignore all the argument. And then suddenly you introduce into the game someone in their ear they're supposed to listen to instead I, of listening to themselves. I don't think there should be a referee in Stockley Park, because I, 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 th then I, I think it very much is up to the official on the field. I just think what VAR is meant to do is say, you need to have a second look at that. All it needs is someone to say, there's enough there for you to probably want to have a look at that. Mm. That's it. 
That's it. I don't think you need a referee to do that. I think any pretty much anyone that watches football could say mm, that you might, you know, there was no contact by the goalkeeper on the ball. If you want to have a look at it, have a look at it. That's it. Mm. That's it. Stay out of it. And he says, oh, well, nah, Jota lost control of it and he's running to the goalkeeper. So, But I think the fact that it's another referee saying to you, are you sure? I think it has to be someone who knows the rules of the game. No, so do I. So do I. I'm not and saying that. that I'm, not saying, I'm not saying that. De facto a referee. What it has to be is someone, is they no. don't know, someone they don't know. You need to know the no, rules of the game. Know. Someone who isn't a mate. Someone who isn't they have to have a cup of tea with the next day. Someone they don't know. Okay. All right. Keep it though. You keep VAR. Right? No, of course I wouldn't keep VAR. It's oh. a blooming nightmare. <laughs> I, knew, I, I knew she'd say that. I just wanted, to, just wanted to tee that one up. Uh, loads still to come on the game podcast. Thanks for listening thus far. Make sure you rate us, leave us a review, and make sure you're subscribed as well. More still to come. Stay with us. We are expecting, no, 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 we're actually hoping that this week the administrators for Derby County will tell us how exactly they hope to continue to fund the championship club for the rest of the season. Both Middlesbrough and Wickham both have compensation claims against Derby. The EFL has demanded proof of funding by the 1st of February, but that's something the Derby administrators claim they have provided. Hopefully, Matt Lawton can shed some light on this. Hi, Matt. Hi, how you doing? Very well. I'm not a Derby County fan, though. They must be pretty worried at this point in time. Just take us back to begin with, very briefly summarise how Derby got into this situation and how serious it is. It's very serious. The fact is the EFL issued a statement towards the end of last week when they said that their money will run out by February the 1st. They quite literally don't have cash to run the club on a day-to-day basis to, to, to pay the players, to pay the staff just to operate as a football club. So it's absolutely a critical point. The cause of this, and Wayne Rooney cut to the chase in his press conference on Friday, the cause of this is Mel Morris, the guy that bought the club in, or took full charge of the club in 2015. And I have to say, I interviewed him not long after that. And I interviewed him with Sam Rush, the then chief executive. They ended up in a massive legal dispute, which was settled out of court in the end. But um, Morris came in and, and on paper, he looked, you know, and, and if Tracy Crouch, with her new recommendations for owners in, of football clubs, on paper, Mel Morris ticked all the boxes. He was a Derby-born, had made half a, half a billion pounds out of um, the sale of Candy Crush, his, his business. You know, so had loads of money and had this ambition to get his boyhood club into the Premier League. But he he overspent, he he thought he knew better than everybody else when it came to how to run the club, made some terrible decisions and they started incurring massive losses. As a result of that, they started to look at the how they could avoid sanctions, the EFL profit and sustainability rules, um, because that limits you to £39 million worth of losses over three years. And they looked at different things. They looked at refinancing or or, or, or buying, basically using another company to buy the stadium. And then they also looked at something called amortization. And they, I I genuinely think they thought they'd come up with something that nobody else had thought of. And it was a way of valuing their players. But when it came to valuing their players and submitting that within their accounts, it, it was basically incorrect. And it meant that their accounts were distorted. And in the end, they got, they got sanctioned. At the same time, and 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 between that and administration, have ended up with a twenty-one point 
deduction. But at the same time, Morris lost over the course of those five, six years, north of £200 million of his own money. And in the end, has just pulled the plug, has just decided enough is enough and has walked away, put the club into administration and left them with loads of debt. Who's to blame, though, for the situation that they're in this week? Um, Because there are fingers being pointed at the administrators, former Derby Mm. owners and also the EFL for some responsibility of them getting down to the wire almost in terms of this 1st of February deadline. Yeah, I, I, I can't really make a judgment on whether the administrators are doing a good or bad job. What I hear is that it's very, very difficult because there's all sorts of issues to address. You know, it is not an attractive club to buy, Hugh, because at the moment, and unless a deal can be struck, um, you're buying a club where you don't own the stadium because, because Morris still owns the stadium. And you've got all this debt. There's £29 million owed to HMRC. There's other football creditors, which adds up to about £15 million. And then there's a £20 million loan um, that needs to be repaid to Michael Dell, to MSD Holdings, you know, Dell of Dell Computers. So there's enormous debts and you're buying a club that is now, you know, Wayne Rooney's actually doing quite a good job. I know they lost against Forest at the weekend, but they've got a fighting chance of surviving. In all probability, you're going to pay between 30 and 60 million pounds for a club where you don't own the stadium and they could be in the third tier of English football by next season. So, you know, I've even heard a suggestion when I was talking to um, some of the fans groups last week who have been having meetings with, you know, their representatives have been meeting with the administrators, meeting with the club, meeting with the EFL. And there was even a suggestion of taking another points deduction to basically to whoever buys it to pay less than the required amount to pay the creditors. And, and, and as a result of that, you, you get another points deduction, but that might be more attractive. It might mean that the club is still breathing, but you could be facing another 15-point deduction if you did that. So there's a, there's a hell of a lot going on. It's very complicated. And to be honest, it goes beyond my um, uh, my completely non-existent accountancy qualifications. But it, it, it's you know, there's, there's three bidders in the background, but there's a reason why no one has struck a deal yet because – it's really, uh, you know, one of the things to, to go off on another quick tangent, one of the things that was put to me last week that the, that the administrators, I was told, had told the fans groups was that they were trying to get, because you got three bidders on the table, they were trying to persuade one of the bidders to, in return for being given preferred bidder status. So this is not a done deal. This is preferred bidder status. So you become the exclusive bidder they wanted a £6 million non-refundable deposit. Now, why would anyone do that? But the reason they're trying to persuade someone to do that is because they know that in about another week, there's no money and they need £6 million quid roughly to get the club to the end of the season. They've calculated that it costs about £1.5 million a month to run the club, you know, to pay everybody's wages. And, um, and that's how desperate it's getting. Matt, in terms of the Wickham and Middlesbrough narrative, obviously football gets incredibly tribal, no more so on social media. And I saw quite a lot of discussion around what a disgrace it was that these clubs weren't dropping their claims against Derby because that that was what was really holding this up. And I mean, mm. by, by the sounds of it, what you've outlined there, even without these claims, there would still be serious issues for Derby. I mean, how, how much of a role are the Wickham-Middlesbrough issues in the overall problems that Derby are facing? Because... 
some fans of Wickham and Middlesbrough are taking an absolute kicking for their club's despicable yeah. behaviour and things like that. Yeah, look, it's true that um, that those issues need to be resolved, Tom, but I think it is, unfortunately, our own industry, I think, has put out stuff that is slightly incorrect from what I understand. You know, I was talking to people last week, talking to sources that certainly understand the, the borough end of things. And, and the, the Wickham, you know, the, the Wickham compensation claim is is pretty minor, I think. But there have been figures banded around like 40 million that, um, that, 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 that borough are supposed to be after. It's much less than that. I think it's four or five million. And I almost think it's, it's really a point of principle for Steve Gibson. You know, the fact of the matter is he, he, he attended, you know, he was watching what was going on. And whether you agree with the, 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 these financial rules or not, they exist. And, and his view, his argument is that some clubs are abiding by those rules and sub club, some clubs aren't. And he could see that certain clubs in the championship were, were bending those rules in pursuit of the Premier League, in pursuit of this massive windfall that you get if you get in the Premier League with all the TV money, the hundreds of millions that you're guaranteed. And he grew so annoyed by that that he actually attended an EFL meeting in March 2019 and he accused them all of cheating. And yeah, it was that strong. I think he pointed the finger at a number of clubs and he called them cheats. And he's been fighting this, this war, if you like, ever since and, and fighting this, you know, pursuing this fight for justice, if you like, since then. And he really wants, you know, it's, it's obviously extremely debatable as to whether Middlesbrough would have been promoted in the season, I think it was 2017, 18, or was it 2018, 19? I'd have to look at the table again. But there was a, there was a season when Derby finished one point ahead of Middlesbrough and got into the playoffs. And I think Martin Samuel in the Mail wrote a column on this last week, and it was very good because it argued the point that they were actually they were on a bit of a bad run at the time. So the idea that Borough would have won the playoffs and secured that 200 million pound windfall is is a stretch. But at the same time. You can see the argument that if a club that wasn't abiding by the rules beat you by one point into the playoffs and had that opportunity, that you would feel in some way that you deserved some form of compensation. The thing is, and this is where I think the administrators do have a case to answer, is that I know Steve Gibson did meet the administrators in London last November. And as a follow-up to that, did make an offer, basically gave them a number that he would be prepared to accept. And it was four or five million pounds. Now that is not a deal breaker in the grand scheme of things. And it's still there to be negotiated, whether it's Mike Ashley or the, or the Appleby group or, or, or the third bidder. It's, this is not, yeah, that is not the issue that's stopping this. It needs to be sorted, but it's, but it's not the biggest stumbling block. I still think the biggest stumbling block is the 20 million quid that's owed to MSD. And I, it's very hard to know whether Morris is still applying any pressure um, with the administrators, because obviously if a deal isn't struck to, um, to, to, to cover that debt, when Morris agreed to that loan, when he took that loan, he not only put that 20 million pound loan against the value of the stadium, but he also provided a personal guarantee. So the issue he will have when basically 
by doing what he's done, he's tried to wash his hands of the whole thing and not incur any more losses is MSD will go after him personally. So there are all sorts of issues to be resolved. And as I say, I remember talking to a prospective bidder who had, who had looked at, you know, if you're buying a club, you, you get, you know, under, under certain non-disclosure agreements, you get a chance to look at the accounts. And I spoke to one prospective bidder last year and they just could not make the sums work. It just was not an attractive proposition to buy it. Now, finally, um, a little bit later on in the Africa Cup of Nations, uh, we will be watching something pretty unique. Um, Comoros are going to have to play an outfield player in goal in their last 16 game with Cameroon. Two of their keepers have tested positive for COVID-19. We wish them well. One of them is injured. Now, if you were stuck in this situation, um, what current or ex-player would you want to be drafted in as your dream replacement keeper Alison it can only be James Milner because then he would have played <laughs> in every single position legitimately at the professional level in the game that man is a god he can play <laughs> anywhere it, it makes my heart sing when he's even if he's just on the bench because I know it doesn't matter who is injured whatever tactical tweaks need to be made no matter what the problems facing he can go in he can play he could play fullback. He could even play centre half. He could play centre mid. He can play out wide. He could be a uh, emergency striker. But he's yet to be. He's yet to be an emergency goalkeeper. And I know he would make three astonishing saves. Probably break his thumb in doing so, but not mention it because he's that that kind of guy. Well, we've all got our goalkeeping desires, haven't we? I've got Edison to take a penalty, and now Alison's got to make Jurgen Klopp put James Milner in goal. Um, I am going to. Am I allowed to, Hugh? Go on then. Jerry Henry and Luis Suarez. What? Solidarity with my Ghana and Ireland fans after their handball <laughs> disgraces in international football. Luis Suarez, of course, fantastic reaction save in the World Cup against Ghana for Uruguay. Got sent off and then went and stood on the touchline and watched Ghana miss the penalty and, and ran down the tunnel yeah, celebrating. Yeah. What an odious little turd he can be at times. <laughs> and then Thierry Henry cheated Ireland out of the World Cup. Great, great reactions again. Deft little touch on the touchline to keep the ball in play. They'd both make excellent goalkeepers. Huge endorsement for VAR that moment as well. So, Alison, I'm sure you'll <laughs> change your opinion. Um, no, I think I'd, I would go for an ex-centre-back of Manchester United for me, just because he's got he's got the face of a goalkeeper. Nemanja Vidic True, looks yeah. like a lot of centre-forwards have dived in a little bit too late on him as he, he sort of crouched down and dived on the ball and he's had a few collisions. So I, I, I think he has the aggression for a Premier League goalkeeper. I'd stick him in there. You'd have the great moment as well as rather than coming and punching the ball from across, he'd just come and head it <laughs> like through a crowd, clear everyone out. <laughs> I'm sure someone will tell me they've seen him in goal now and he was brilliant as well. Uh, listen, Tom Clark, Alison Rudd, thank you for being with me on the game podcast today. Um, you're going to get a little bumper slice on Derby County as well, so look out for that. Uh, but make sure you're subscribed to The Times and Sunday Times for more of our award-winning journalism. Sign up today, get yourself one month free. Check it out. It is thetimes.co.uk forward slash the game. We'll see you on Thursday. As you're listening to me, Daisy, Apple's iPhone disassembly robot, is dismantling an iPhone into lots of recyclable parts. That's how Apple recovers more materials than conventional recycling methods. 
Thanks, Daisy. There's more to iPhone.